You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. And you are listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program produced on Wurundjeri country. I am Ayan Shirwa. On the show today, we are talking archiving and African heroines with Roberta Joy Rich. So stick around for that. But first up, I'm not sure if you know, but Beyonce dropped her latest album, Renaissance, and I've been dying, I mean dying to play some tracks from that album since it dropped. I love, <clears throat> I'm not afraid to admit this, but I love Beyonce. I've loved her since I think 1999, maybe 2000, when she was in Destiny's Child. So that's like 22, 23 years. Um, so if you think about it, Beyonce has been my longest relationship And to celebrate my relationship with Beyonce, I want to play one of my favorite songs from this album. I want to say my current favorite song because, you know, it might change and I don't want to be fixed on one song um, because, you know, I'm a diverse woman and I have diverse choices. Um, Anyways, let's play Energy by Beyonce. And when we come back, we will play my interview with the gorgeous Roberta Joy Rich. What an amazing name. On stage rocking out stir crazy. Coco flow like 1980s. Come lit still I drop lazy. None of that maybe energy. 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 Just five. Phone now 45. Don't get out of line. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Pick a side. Only double lines we cross is dollar signs, yeah Ooh, 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 hold up, wait I hear you just got paid, making rain Energy, she more can't go, he more central pay Been waving the room, the crowd gon' move Look around, everybody on mute Look around, it's me and my crew Big energy We was on stop mode, got phones, phones from page Vogue No pause, chat too much, bro, clip on Terrorists. He was on stop mode, got phones, phones from Pitchfork, no pause. 
House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program. Before the community announcement, I played Energy featuring BAM um, and Beyonce, of course. It is Beyonce's track. It's from her latest album, Renaissance. You should definitely check it out, especially if you're like into dance music and if you're also just excited to have Beyonce back. Up now is Roberta Joy Rich. She is a multidisciplinary artist. So we're talking video, performance, installation and mixed media projects. Roberta is from the South African diaspora, but she was born in Withering Country, also known as Geelong. And today, that is where we start her story. I grew up in Geelong in like the very late 80s, early 90s. Um, And I guess going to school in the kind of like 2000s or whatnot. And yeah, Geelong at this time, I mean, it's changed a lot, but it was a very blue collar kind of place. But um, the part of Wadawadong country, what is now known as Leopold, was very much like a farming kind of town. And so it was also a very large like Anglo-Aussie um, community here. And I remember at my high school, I think um, our family was one of like, I think five like African diaspora families in the whole school. And I think also because of, um, let's say my name, but also like my family's visuality. Um, so I was constantly questioned about like my African identity as well. Growing up here was pretty intense (laughs) to say but then when I reflect it's kind of interesting that subconsciously like the friendships and connections that I ended up making with peers in school when I look back were peer like First Nations folk or other South Africans that I happened to just kind of find a place of familiarity. I moved to Nam basically once I finished high school and somewhat very naive but managed to get into art school and my parents were like yay she's into university I don't think they realized that art school was (laughs) not necessarily a engineering or a law degree but um yeah like I moved soon after because um it wasn't like a deliberate like I need to get out of here but I think there wasn't much really keeping me here um but when I reflect back on it it's interesting the relationships I kind of made with people at the time living here so have you gone back to South Africa because I know that's where your family's from or where you're from sorry yeah yep so yeah I was um born and raised here and then uh, my mum has a massive family and my dad uh, but more so my mum's immediate family she's the second youngest of 13 um, while my dad there's a lot of cousins and then second cousins <laughs> and such so as you would know so mm-hmm. um I my first trip was basically once I finished uh high school my auntie was like you need to 
um, she did the same thing for my brother and sister, but was like, okay, now that you've finished your studies, like it's time for you to come over and meet your family and learn more about, you know, your um, heritage and where you're from. So my first trip when I was, was about 18. And then from that trip, it continued to inspire me and also how my arts practice was developing at the time. And I would then go back as part of my Master of Fine Arts research in 2012. And then that trip really kind of solidified relationships with family and friends. And then I would go back again in 2016, almost spending most of the year there and kind of again um, in that period of 2018. So especially in my um, older years, I've been back and forth quite a bit. And, um, yeah, it's been really eye-opening for, I guess, my positionality as a diaspora person on Mm -hmm. unceded country, but learning more about, yeah, the nuances and histories of our heritage, which is very contentious and fraught to say. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who grow up outside of their cultural home and then they go back because I haven't had the opportunity to go back and in my Mm. mind I have all these expectations of what it's going to be and I've had family and friends and people Mm. who've gone back and they're like Ayan it's nothing like you pictured it which is kind of sad because we have this nostalgia about a place that we've never been so Mm. I guess that's what I was curious about um, whether you had any expectations um, visiting for the first time Yes, of course. I think it's funny because there were expectations, but I think they continue to evolve. And Mm. the more time that I've spent away or spent here, my kind of, yeah, those anticipations or nostalgias shift. Like I remember when I, on my first visits, I was kind of blown away by the class disparities. And I remember taking lots of photos and of where I was and just the colour palette and the the visual nature of the place was just so different to growing up here. But then a lot of that documentation I kind of just kept to myself. It didn't feel necessary to share. And I think as I've kind of developed ideas and become older, I've come to realise, like, yeah, what my privileges are when I enter such a space. I feel like there's a lot of... um, like white photographers who might visit such places and take photographs and extract and then show them or exhibit them and such. Whereas the more time I spent there and learnt about some of the issues and things happening um, on the motherland, the more kind of protective I was and then how that influenced my expectations. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Roberta Joy Rich. I just love saying that name. It's such a powerful name, a name that requires you to pay attention. It's just awesome. Um, We're going to play a quick community announcement and then we will be back with more from Roberta.
Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program produced on Wurundjeri country. I am Ayan Shirwa. So a recap of today's interview. So I've been speaking to Roberta Joy Ridge and Roberta so far has discussed her upbringing and the strength and creativity she draws from her South African heritage. We now return to Roberta to find out what inspires her practice. So let's look at your practice. You're a multidisciplinary artist, which means, you know, you get to play around with various mediums and subject matters. But is there one thing or an idea that drives your work? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of evolved over time. I predominantly work within installation or especially video installation. But part of kind of what I touched on earlier about growing up here and kind of just not really finding many points of connection and having a very complicated and um, a history that my parents weren't necessarily quick to speak about the apartheid and such. So when I um, started to explore ideas of representation and place and identity in my work, I realised after some time I was always drawn to personal items like some installations may have included the family dinner table um, mm. that we ate meals around or archival documents of my father's birth certificates that's used the language from South African government during the apartheid regime. And, and now I quite clearly have realised, oh, I was doing this practice of collecting and archiving, but I didn't really know what I was doing because the um, arts institution, if you like, that I was studying at art school, I weren't really interested in these dialogues. Um, now there's this kind of reckoning, which is putting um, black artists in an interesting place because, you know, there's lots of opportunities, but also there's agendas that come alongside that. So within South Africa, my family um, were classed as a term that is has been neutralised there or has become neutralised but is derogatory in most places in the world. But we were classed as so-called Cape Coloureds, which is a very um, unique and mixed ethnic group that are um, Khoikhoi and San, um, African Indigenous peoples, but also neighbouring um, Hossa and many displaced groups from parts of Asia and around the southern region of Africa. So being called this term, I was also kind of like, what does that even mean? And so the visits that I've partaken in, as well as my own arts practices, kind of gone from a rage of like white Australia, which is still exists, but into practices of healing and connection and wanting to share. And yeah, like creating work that I feel like it's almost thinking of not future me's necessarily, but these were the types of dialogues that I wasn't able to have 
in my younger self. So yeah, yeah literally utilizing like whether it's personal objects or research, um, which kind of relates to the um, current project that Naomi and I um, have just worked on mm. and she was wearing trousers. And I can't wait for you to to get into that towards the end of our conversation. But what popped out to me in what you had to say was, I think you said a reckoning, but also that there's agendas behind it. Um, I know the past few years there's been a lot of excitement and interest in, you know, diverse artists. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, any um, issues that pop out to you? Yeah, of course. I mean... You know, I've been practicing um, as a visual artist. If we, it's hard to put a scale on these things, but since I finished art school for the last ten years, and I've seen a shift in the narratives and the artists, um, and as I said before, agendas that arts organisations um, are now kind of leaning towards of wanting to show artists of colour or minority groups and all these kind of various um, previously kind of very much always framed as subjugated identities. And it somewhat makes me suspicious because um, this is work that I've been participating in and unpacking and developing for some time. But there is this kind of air, I feel, where arts organisations also want to present themselves as woke, (laughs) you know, or that they're aware of what's happening and, you know, don't get me wrong, it is very exciting because I feel like there's been a lot of work involved to also get to this point where certain opportunities that when I came out of art school just didn't exist and even just a basic structure of artist fees. I mean, when I was a younger artist, I paid for so many, rent for so many spaces to show my work and so there's been these shifts that have evolved and progressed into positive directions. But I'm also, I'm interested in how organisations will support artists to present work that also challenges the Institute itself. Um, So the Institute isn't just a vessel, but it's actively engaging in the dialogues that's happening um, with artists of colour. Let's look at archiving. For folks Mm. who aren't, you know, intimately familiar with archiving, they might view the practice as, you know, nothing more than um, like collecting photos or items or whatever, but it's obviously so much more than that. What is Mm. archiving to you and what do you think, what do you think archiving seeks to do? Archiving for me as a practice, I mean, it's part of it is Um, self-educating and researching and collecting these kind of fragments to build upon an understanding of self. But I also feel like within archiving, there's this process and I'm going to use this term, but anarchiving. So when I'm thinking of anarchiving, I'm thinking of archives that exist, which can be reframed and kind of recontextualized with in a creative context um, to help present stories and narratives of strength. Because um, as you were saying before, sometimes when we think of archiving, it's reduced to a practice of maybe collecting a particular object and it's a collection, whereas that's a very, I guess, Western trope mm. of like collecting all of these things or having these kind of conquests, whereas 
I'm really interested in this process of archiving, but it's more, yeah, a recontextualization of archives and what can these archives, especially for brown and black communities and First Nations communities, archives that can be reframed so that we can speak in ways, because I think for such a long time, these archives have been in institutions telling us are or telling people, you know, our stories and the agency is removed from us. So, yeah, I'm really interested in this process of archiving, which there is a process of collection, but it's reframed in a way where it's empowering um, brown and black communities. This has become a part of my visual arts practice where whether it be video footage that I've edited, um, an example was in my exhibition earlier this year, The Purple Shall Govern, I asked Professor Gary Foley if I could use his video footage of a journalist um, presenting media about when Nelson Mandela came to visit Australia. So I recontextualised that archive by editing out who got to speak and who couldn't speak. So, Mm. yeah, it's a bit um, abstract from what we think of archiving can be. But I like to think I'm trying to engage in a process of an archiving in that way. I guess the next question goes to what you've just said, which is, as you know, there's a lot of power in cultivating culture, in archiving identity. You know, you're you're given mm. a lot of power and sometimes, you know, you can see yourself misusing that power. And I was wondering, are there ethical issues that you consider when it comes to selecting what items get to be preserved and what items are left on the cutting floor? Mm, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it depends like on who you're working with and what that archive looks like. Um, When I was working with Footscray Community Arts, uh, I was engaging in a process of conversations um, with elders to then you know, speak about the archives I wanted to use that relate to loss of land and whether that's okay to present these on um, Bunwarang and Woiwarang country because of, you know, the current contestation and um, no treaty. Um, Before Anne, she was wearing trousers, we were very much working with these kind of bodies, if you like, like Saha, South African History Archive, and Baha, the Bailey's Archive um, of African History. And it's, yeah, it's a really funny, strange and interesting process because depending what the content is, Mm. like political posters that may have been made by the people for the people, they've become weird copyrights where whoever's maybe got the last poster or has that kind of digitised, there's permissions, which I think is very important as well. So Naomi and I, uh, my co-curator Naomi Falapi and I, when we were presenting some of the research that informed um, the ideas for this current exhibition Arts House, we engaged in that process of permission. So for example, there's an amazing Zimbabwean freedom fighter named Tenjiwe Lesabe and you literally type her name in Google and nothing will come up. Mm. Um, The Saha archive have images and photographs of her, but it's the copyright is under um, because the photographer has passed away, but under um, family, but no one's been able to get in contact with that family for over a decade. 
And I think there's also other kind of more complicated relationships that come with that. So a decision we made, I feel like some people would be very careless and just Mm. show the photograph even though that is not the process. But we decided to write a kind of poetic visual description of the photograph so it's still kind of, um, I guess, honouring that um, place that we found but also respecting that we don't have permission to use the photograph. And then, yeah, other things is much more like you can use this photo of Dorothy Masuku, but it's going to cost you X amount of money per. So there's your position as a researcher, but then yeah. there's also like these bodies that hold these archives. And I think that's a whole nother kind of conversation about who gets to access what. But we were very thankful the archival bodies we worked with um, were super helpful in giving us the contact details for us to follow up ask for permission, explain the context. And I think also because working within arts but with the intention of sharing and educating our communities, um, there's a lot of support for that, whereas sometimes the intention of some people to use these images can be very uh, problematic. So I'm looking at the Zoom and there's like a few minutes left. So I'm going to maybe put two questions together, which is... And she was wearing trousers. Um, a call to our heroines was a recent project. So by the time mm-hmm. this interview goes out, the exhibition would have ended, unfortunately. But yes. let's look at some reflections, some highlights from the mm. event. And if you can give me maybe a few of your heroines and why they're up there. For me, a goal has been wanting to, I guess, bridge the connection between working with Um, artists of the Southern African region with those in the diaspora because I don't think currently there's any kind of residency or exchange that exists. So it was really exciting to do this project to, we've developed relationships and connections and, you know, some of these artists, um, Black Banana, Kirsty Marillier, Tariro Mavondo, Tembile Msezane, Nonsi Kalele Mutiti, Jabu Nadia Newman, and Rara Zulu, they're all, uh, well, especially the artists on the continent were kind of sus on wanting to also show work in Mm. the Australian context because they're well aware of the colonial occupation here and so how that influenced work and the decisions that we're kind of talking about before of what to present or what to leave more ambiguous. It's been really exciting to see multidisciplinary work um, of all these artists connecting because some of the works the artists located here we sent to the artists on the continent who have then responded to their work so it's really come together quite beautifully and I think for me a heroine also as part of this process is learning more about Princess Krotoa I mean I'm always very excited to learn more about my heritage because there's been so many silences or senses within it. And Kritoa was one of the Khoi um, princesses who is often framed in a negative way in colonial archives, but she's actually this really important figure in Southern African history. So it was really awesome to learn more about her and her story. Um, But, yeah, really just grateful and thankful to begin this dialogue as well with artists on the African continent. And that was Roberta Joy Rich discussing her African heroines and 
highlights from her exhibition and she was wearing trousers, a call to our heroines. Roberta co-created this exhibition with Naomi Velafi. Um, I hope I pronounced it right. You can follow Roberta on Instagram at Roberta Joyrich. So that's one word. Find out what she's up to on her blog, Roberta Joy Rich. And that is it. You can listen back to this episode on our 3CR page, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash diaspora blues. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at 3cr.diaspora blues. Taking us out now is because I'm having a look as to what song of Beyonce's I should play because there's heaps. There's like 20 songs on her latest album renaissance but i think we should say goodbye with cozy so we'll say bye with cozy and up next is paul factor from urban voices this a reminder Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.